0: Well, it's great to be with you guys tonight. Thanks for those who've come back and then new folks who were elsewhere this morning. And thank you for joining us tonight. It's going to be great to. That was your. <laughs> it's great to get to be back with you all tonight as we're we're journeying through Nehemiah and talking about reset and rebuilding. And tonight we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter two, Um, you know. Waiting makes us nervous. It wasn't planned for the CD not to work as Rebecca stood up to sing, but that made you nervous, didn't it? Made Rebecca nervous, didn't it? (laughs) You're like, it made Rashonda nervous because you're like, come on, work. Waiting makes us nervous. And if there is ever any pause, we wonder, well, is something wrong? Why isn't it going? We want to go. We want to move. We want to have something happen. What about when it comes to waiting on God. Does that make you nervous? Uh, Sometimes when when I'm waiting, there are days when I feel that maybe my prayers are being ineffective or maybe I'm missing something in my God connection or maybe he's not hearing. Maybe he's messing with me and perhaps I should do something to help God out a bit. But waiting on God should not make us nervous. Waiting on God is often an important part of God's work in our lives, especially in his work of resetting and rebuilding. When we wait on God, we are submitting ourselves to God so that He we can align our will with his and that we can know right where he is. We are submitting ourselves to God and allowing God then to prepare us so we can be ready to act when God is ready to act. We don't have to wait forever. We just simply have to wait for Him to be ready to act. And that moment when the door cracks open and then God says, let's go, is an amazing time. That's what we're going to see tonight. There's no reason to be nervous when waiting for God. We can be confident that God will answer. If you want to hear from God, you will. But it will come in His time. But when God Gives the answer, and when God lays his hands on you, look out. Some good things are going to happen. Here in Nehemiah chapter 2, Nehemiah finds himself... Waiting on God. This morning we talked about how Nehemiah had found out about how uh, Jerusalem was in such disarray. He knew it because the city had been like that for 140 years. But now he heard a report firsthand of how things were just in deplorable condition. It broke his heart. He prayed for God to give him guidance. And he Wait. Uh, we didn't read the end of that prayer this morning from verse 10 and following. Listen to how he concludes that prayer. They are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Now, who's this man? He then says, I was cupbearer to the king. And then chapter 2 begins, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. That little historical note that it's in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, may not seem important but remember that in chapter 1, it was the month of Kislev when Nehemiah found out about the state of Jerusalem. That's roughly our December. Now it's the month of Nisan, which is roughly our March or April. And so that historical note lets us know that it's been four months since Nehemiah heard about Jerusalem and began praying about what to do for Jerusalem. He began praying. He began fasting and waiting on God. So Nehemiah has been waiting on God for at least four months. And though Nehemiah badly wanted to be in Jerusalem, he was not in a hurry. He waited on God. And though Nehemiah knew the work needed to be done, he was not in a hurry. He waited on God. And, and though the situation was indeed desperate, Nehemiah was not desperate. He waited on God. Nehemiah didn't run ahead of God. He waited on God because Nehemiah knew that when God lays his hands on you, look out. If you run ahead too fast, he's not with you. If you lag behind, he's not with you. It's when he lays his hand on you. But still, while Nehemiah waited, do you think he was nervous? Perhaps. Maybe not so much over if God would answer, but maybe how God would answer. But nevertheless, Nehemiah continued to fast And pray and wait. And for four months he bombarded the throne of heaven with prayers for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And while he waited on God, he continued in his daily business of serving as cupbearer to the king. You know, even when we wait on God, we can do no less than continue our daily business of what we're supposed to be doing. We can't stop life and say, well, I'm just waiting on God to move. We have to keep on moving ourselves. Uh, You know, it's often in the midst of that everyday life movement that God then says, let's go. Sometimes God uses the circumstance and situations and relationships of our everyday lives to answer our prayers. And that's just what God does for Nehemiah. Every day for four months. Nehemiah had gone to the king's chamber, just as he had always, to act as the king's cupbearer. The cupbearer was the person who tested the king's food and drink to make sure that it was not poisoned. So, the king always ate secondhand. The king always drank Nehemiah's backwash. Mercy! Mercy. (laughs) So... Every day, several times a day, for four months, Nehemiah continued his daily duty. He'd taste, wait. He didn't die, so he handed it to the king. (laughs) And he just did that day after day. Here you are, king. A wonderful wine today. Here you are, king. A great meal today. And with pleasantries and a smile on his face, because that's what he was supposed to do, Nehemiah continued his work. A servant in the court was expected to always be in a good mood no matter what was going on in his own life. The expected rules of court etiquette said that the cupbearer was to be pleasant and humble and and not particularly noticeable. Negative emotions could be construed as dissatisfaction or criticism of the king. So when you came up with the king, you were always having a good day and you made him feel good. But then came the day we encounter here in Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah, I feel, was tired of faking it. For four months, he'd been waiting on God and faking smiles with the king. And he couldn't smile anymore when Jerusalem was in a mess. So before going in to perform his daily duties, he prayed the prayer that ends chapter 1, which ends with, Give your servant success today in the presence of this man. Nehemiah got up off his knees. He went to work. But on this day, he didn't put on his plastic smile. Instead, he decided to take a great risk. He'd been waiting on God, and apparently he sensed that it was time to make a step. Would this be the day when God opened the door to action? Would this be the day that God would say, let's go? Would this be the day when God laid his hands on Nehemiah? Well, let's see. Look at the end of verse 1. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing But sadness of heart, crack, the door opens a little bit. After four months of praying and waiting, the door begins to open. The king notices Nehemiah is different. Why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can only be sadness of heart. We need to give this pagan king some credit. King Artaxerxes was perceptive and he was concerned. Any king would have noticed a change in expression. I mean, after all, you were supposed to have a smile when you came into his presence. But Artaxerxes goes beyond just noticing the change. He expresses concern. And God used this concern then to provide an opportunity for Nehemiah. The door is opening. And Nehemiah has a face-to-face audience with the king aside from his normal role. And so after four months of praying and waiting, the door begins to open. You know, answers really do come to prayer. A lot of y'all remember Miss Ruth Eldridge, who was a member here uh, for years. She, I think she was a charter member here. And uh, Miss Ruth was in her 80s when I was pastoring here, and, and her poor body was just worn out of years and years of just hard work on a ranch and farm. And one day Miss Ruth shared this story with me, and I do not it's in her writings. So I don't even remember how she shared it with me. But she said this, some years ago we were baling hay and we're just about 30 minutes to an hour from being through when the biggest blackest cloud I'd ever seen came up real fast and rain started pouring. I had two of my little grandsons with me so we hopped in the truck and hurried home which was about two miles away. When we got home, one of the boys said, Grandma, I prayed for rain. It was so hot and I was so miserable, I asked God to make it rain so we could go inside. She says, I told my grandson, boy, you better be careful what you pray for because you sure know how to do it. (laughs) When God lays his hands on you, you got to look out. You never know. Answers do come to prayer. Sometimes they come in great downpours. Sometimes they come in small cracks indoors. But the answers always come. The question then is one of great importance. Will we recognize the answer and seize the opportunity? So what does Nehemiah do? Well, he swallows hard. And that is in the text, I think. In a way. Look at there. At the end of verse 2, I was very much afraid. He had good reason to be. First, Nehemiah had, had violated the court etiquette by not being jovial in the king's presence. And his reason for not being jovial better be good. But the second reason for Nehemiah being afraid was a big one because Nehemiah was about to ask this king to reverse an earlier edict. You see, when you go back to the book of Ezra, in Ezra chapter 4, Ezra reports of opposition that had come in the reconstruction of Jerusalem. Uh, and this was a decade or two before the days of Nehemiah and Artaxerxes is the one who says, Look, if they can't get along, we're just going to stop the rebuilding. There should be no more work done in Jerusalem. And so now, Nehemiah comes to Artaxerxes to ask him to help him rebuild the city he's already said shall not be rebuilt. So, I was very much afraid is a very sincere statement. So, Nehemiah was very much afraid. But remember... Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the ability to draw the strength of God and then to move forward in his strength. As one person said, courage is fear that has said its prayers. It's okay to be fearful, but just be strong in the Lord. So Nehemiah said his prayers. Nehemiah realizes God is opening the door, supplying the opportunity. So he speaks in verse 3, I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Notice something interesting. Nehemiah doesn't say the city's name. And I think that's calculated. He just says the city where my fathers are buried. Nehemiah is bold enough to ask, but he's smart enough not to hurt his case before he even can make it. Nehemiah didn't know if Artaxerxes might still be opposed and even hostile to the rebuilding of Jerusalem. So Nehemiah doesn't mention the city's name. But Nehemiah does know that Artaxerxes would be sympathetic to the idea of rebuilding one's ancestral homeland because all Middle Easterners honored their ancestors. So Nehemiah only gives Artaxerxes as much info as he needs at this point in the conversation for Artaxerxes to continue to empathize with him. And so now we see the waiting coming to an end. The door to answered prayer swinging wide open. God whispers in Nehemiah's ear, let's go. Answered prayer begins to pour down like the rain did on Miss Ruth's hay pasture. God begins to lay his hands on Nehemiah and look out. Look at verse 4. The king said to me, what is it you want? Now the door's (laughs) wide open. What is it you want? Do you think Nehemiah gulped? Like, oh my goodness. In an instant, in one question, Nehemiah knew this was his chance. He could hear God saying, waiting's over, boy. Let's go. So what does Nehemiah do? The second part of verse 4. Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. Now, before he does anything, Nehemiah prays again. Was this a long prayer? No. This is one of those, help me God right now, amen. And God does. Nehemiah offered this quick prayer because this entire event was built on the foundation of four months of intense prayer. But this quick prayer simply helps Nehemiah focus again on God and be specific with the king. God, give me help. Help me have the right words in this moment for exactly what I need with the king. You know, in the waiting, God had been organizing the needs in Nehemiah's mind. In that waiting, God had been building wisdom in Nehemiah. In the waiting, God had been softening Artaxerxes' heart. In the waiting, God had not been silent. Though Nehemiah Nehemiah may have been tempted to think he was. God's never silent in the waiting. He's working in the waiting to help his work to be done. Sometimes God answers instantly. Other times he says, wait. I don't know why that is. Maybe we aren't quite ready for the answer. Maybe circumstances aren't quite right for the answer. And so God says, wait. Wait. But here's a truth that I learned a couple of weeks ago. The length of our willingness to wait is a measure of the strength of our faith. Psalm 27, 14 says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. The length of our willingness to wait is a measure of the strength of our faith. The longer we're willing to wait, the greater Our faith, our faith can even grow stronger in that waiting or it can grow weaker in that waiting. The choice is ours. However, rest assured, when God has us wait, it is not a time of inactivity for him or for us. We're praying. We're waiting. He's working behind the scenes. So before he says anything, Nehemiah, praise to the Lord. Nehemiah knew everything hinged on God's working. This encounter was not Nehemiah's doing. Only God could have arranged this circumstance. So then notice, I answered the king in verse 5. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Nehemiah's request is a little more specific. He's still not, saying in Jerusalem. It's the city in Judah where my, my fathers are buried. But Nehemiah's prayer is now moving into faithful action. Nehemiah didn't wait for God to tell the king what was needed. God had done his part. It was time now for Nehemiah to do his part. And so he steps up and he makes the request. Now, we can learn a couple of great principles right here, and I've adapted these from uh, two that Gene Getz has in one of his studies on Nehemiah. The first is this. We may not always be as effective as possible because we don't do all we can to prepare ourselves for our potential opportunities. We may not always be as effective as possible because we don't do all we can to prepare ourselves for potential opportunities. Nehemiah prepared himself. He didn't just rely on God to do everything for him. If you're not ready yourself, God cannot do what He wants to do through you. He comes to you and He says, let's go. And then you say, oh, um, uh, I'm not ready. I just can't handle it. I'm not not sure that I can do this. Then God's going to say, fine. You've got to be ready to say, okay, I'm ready. Victory seldom comes in I-can't-handle-it situation. The second truth is we may not always be as effective as possible because we're trying to do everything on our own strength without the balance between prayer and preparation. Nehemiah didn't take matters into his own hands the day after he heard the bad news about Jerusalem. He didn't jump up and, and say, hey, I've got it, guys. Uh, and then run right to King Artaxerxes and say, king, you got to help us out. Listen up, man. Here's what we need. No way. He would have gotten killed that day. But Nehemiah was willing to pay the price of waiting so that he could be prepared and that he could have the strength of God and that God could begin to work. He awaited and allowed God to prepare him for the day when God said, let's go. So Nehemiah had the perfect blend of preparation on his part and empowerment on God's part. And when the two came together, there was power. Nehemiah answers specifically and directly. And then we see. The result, then the king in verse six, with the queen sitting beside him, asked, How long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. Nehemiah asked first simply to return to Ju- Judah, but he is very polite in his request. Notice if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in his sight, it's all very polite. It's all, he's bowing to the king's authority. But Nehemiah shows his willingness to submit to the king's wishes. He's still earning favor with the king. And Nehemiah is going to receive the blessing. Why? Because the king can think back. Has Nehemiah ever been rebellious? No. He's one of my most trusted servants. He tests all my food before I take it so that I won't die. He's willing to die for me. So I'm going to trust him. And he... Allows this leave of absence. So with the leave of absence approved, now Nehemiah asks for a little more. He asks for royal letters of introduction. He asks for authority. And he asks for money to buy materials. Look at for verse 7 and 8. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will Provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he'll give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. Do you think he just made up this list on the fly? No. Nehemiah had done his homework. And when it came time, he's like, Well, king, since you said I can go, um, here's here's the list. So he gets... Lays out what he needs. It's obvious that while he prayed, he planned for God to answer. Earnest prayer requires action. You act on your prayers because you expect an answer. You till the soil while you pray for rain. In his book, The Circle Maker, Mark Batterson writes, One reason many of us never get an answer to our prayers is that all we do is pray. Think about that. Let that sink in. The first time you read it you're like, "Huh?" But one reason many of us never get an answer to our prayers is that all we do is pray. If you want God to move, sometimes you have to move. We learned that lesson a little, 10 years ago and a little over 10 and a half years ago and 9 months. Those of you who were here then know that. Rebecca and I had been, we struggled to, to have a baby. We had a miscarriage in 2005, and, you know, we thought, well, we'll be able to, to see a, a baby come. We went to see Facing the Giants, a movie, one of the first movies that the Kendrick brothers did. And in that movie, there was this one of the subplots was the, the um, coach having trouble uh, having a, a baby. And, and then the other part of the story, there was this great statement that came you got to pray for rain. That night after that movie, Rebecca and I went to Old Navy and we were walking around and we saw this little teddy bear. And I picked up the teddy bear and I said, We're going to pray for rain. We took that teddy bear to the parsonage. We put it in the room that was supposed to be the baby's room whenever the baby came and we prayed and we prayed. Dale and Linda, I remember them coming to the house one time and Dale prayed for us. And the church, you all prayed for us and we prayed and we prayed and we prayed. And honestly, I thought, Man, I'm going to buy that teddy bear and like next month we're going to be pregnant. It. it didn't happen. It was another year and a half or so before that ever happened. But we were preparing the soil for the rain to come. And then it did finally come. Nehemiah planned while he prayed. So when Artaxerxes asked what he needed, he was ready. And did you hear the result? He says, and because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. When God puts his hands on you, look out. Nehemiah leaves the king's presence with a leave of absence, royal letters of safe passage, the authority to accomplish the task, and a blank check to buy whatever was needed. It's unheard of. It's We could say, man, that's amazing. And I suppose it is, but then, is it really? Because you see, whenever you and I are faithful to submit to God and allow God to unfold His plan in His time, we're ready to go when He says, let's go, that is the result. God lays His hand on you. And then you get to see God do great things. It still happens in our day as well. As you reset and rebuild, you're going to pray and submit yourselves to God's direction. And as you pray, you will plan for what God could do. And then as God lays his hands upon you to do a mighty work through you, you'll be ready to move according to his plans. One of my favorite stories about pastoring here, I've shared several times um, in various places. And that is, um, it's happened in the first summer that we were here. When I was called to pastor here in May of 2003. And uh, I was excited about this opportunity for my first pastorate, but I was also a bit uncertain about what could really happen in the middle of nowhere, Texas. And, I mean, one of the first weeks, you know, I looked out the parsonage window and there were goats on the front porch of the office over there. And I thought, oh, my Lord, what have I got myself into here? And and I I really thought at that time, I I think I'll just, you know, God's got us here. This is that first pastor that everybody's got to have. I'll just bide my time until something else comes along. What can really happen here? But I pray, Lord, direct us. Give us a vision. Help us to see what, what needs to happen. And one day, just a month or two in, I had driven out to Peggy and Charlie's house. Peggy was the treasurer back then. I had gone out there to pick up a check or something. Peggy wasn't there, but Charlie was there. He had the check. And Charlie and I sat down and talked a while. And Charlie told me his story. And we kind of got to know each other that day. And I was on my way back to the church that afternoon and um, just driving down road, I felt like God said, something big is going to happen here. And I thought, here, you know, (laughs) but it was clear as a bell. There's only three or four times in my life where this this statement has come in my mind, just as clear as a bell, something big is going to happen here. And I drove back to the church excited. I parked at the parsonage, ran in, told Rebecca, I was like, I don't know, but I just, God just said something big is going to happen here. I came in the office. Millie was the secretary. And, and I told her, I said, Millie, I don't know. Something big is going to happen here. And Millie was like, I think something big is going to happen here. and I don't know what it's going to be. And, you know, I didn't know what it meant then. And sometimes I still don't know what it meant there. But I do know this. On that day, God did two things. He motivated a young preacher. And he began working in our church in a new way. And we saw God do a lot of rather big things for a small church. In fact, God changed my attitude from a church in the middle of nowhere to a church in the middle of everywhere. We started thinking about regional kind of idea, and we saw God do these things. And and it culminated at the end with two big things that I was really proud of. Um, That last summer we were here, we hosted Impact Camp, which the youth still go to. It was the largest camp they'd ever had at the time in the smallest community they'd ever had, and the church rallied together and put that camp together. And it was just amazing to see that take place. And Roshonda was telling me some of the kids who attended the camp then are now in leadership of the camp today. And then the other thing that we got to see God do was planning the Monte County Cowboy Church. And, you know, I can remember standing here and, you know, pleading for congregation. We need a couple of families to go help start this church. We're going to loan them for six months. And we need you to go for six months. And... And, uh, you know, and Dave and Sherry came up and they're like, we want to go do this. And then Dale and Linda were like, we're going to go do this. And I'm thinking, not (laughs) y'all. There's gotta be some fringe people that could go do this. And, uh, but God was moving and he, he took them out and they went and it was supposed to only be six months. And here we are like 14 years later or 13 years later, I guess, and, God's done amazing things. I love it. Linda texts me. Still, we had five hundred people today. Never in a million years would I've thought that. But God did something big, and we weren't listed as the sponsor church of the Monte County Cowboy Church. But it was this church that planted Monte County Cowboy Church because we gave the people, and we really gave the sacrifice. I, the yeah. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) right. (laughs) But, you know, I just I'm I'm excited about that. And and it's just that thing. When God places his hand upon you, look out. It was probably the hardest thing I've ever done as a pastor, but it was one of the best things I've ever seen done as a pastor. How many of you believe that if God could do it in the past, he can do it again? In anywhere, in any place. Uh, when God lays his hand on you, you got to look out. There was a young new preacher who was walking with an older, more seasoned preacher in a rose garden one day. And the young guy was just feeling so frustrated about his ministry. Things just weren't happening as fast as he wanted. He wanted more stuff to happen. He wanted it quicker. And the old preacher just paused and he stepped over to a rose bush and he plucked a rosebud that was tightly closed. And he said, here you go. I've got a challenge for you. Take that rosebud and open that bud to full bloom without tearing any of the petals. The young preacher looked in disbelief. The old preacher's like, there's no way I can do that. I can't open a rosebud. And the old preacher then began quoting the following poem. It's only a tiny rosebud, a flower of God's design, but I cannot unfold the petals with these clumsy hands of mine. The secret of unfolding flowers is not known to such as I. God opens this flower so sweetly when in my hands they fade and die. If I cannot unfold a rosebud, this flower of God's design, then how can I think I have wisdom to unfold this life of mine? So I'll trust in him for his leading each moment of every day. I'll look to him for his guidance each step of the pilgrim way. The pathway that lies before me, only my Heavenly Father knows. I'll trust Him to unfold the moments just as He unfolds the rose. You know, you can try to force things. You can try to make things happen, but when you do, you'll mess up. You'll tear up the rosebud. But you can be ready. And you can make a move that allows God to move. And then, when God lays His hands upon you, Look out. Tonight, as we prepare to go into a time of invitation, I just want to ask this question for you to think through. What does God want you to do while you wait? And that can be for God to move in, in this church or those of you from other churches, for God to do some new things in your church. Or it may be something's going on in your life and you've been waiting on God to move. What does God want you to do while you wait? One of our... Our ministers brought up a good point to me a couple of weeks ago. We've been casting uh, vision and and setting some goals as a church staff for the next year. And um, Danny came in my office the other day and he sat down and he said, you know, Stuart, we're setting all these big goals about Sunday school growth. And Thomas has this idea, that's our education ministry. He's like, he has this goal of increasing Sunday school by like 200%. He said, I was walking through some of our Sunday school areas and we have rooms that Still have junk in them from when the church imploded years ago. He said, what if we cleaned out those rooms and got ready for God to give the people? He said, are we really ready for God to give the people if they just showed up Sunday? He said, what if we got ready? What if we cleaned up those rooms and we had chairs in them just ready? So all we had to do was open the door and start that class. It was a great point. I said, run with it. And he started cleaning out rooms (laughs) that week. What does God want you to do while you wait? Don't be just sitting there. Be active. Asking God to move. Because then when God lays his hands on you, you can look out. Let's pray together. Lord, tonight we just thank you for the times when we can look back through our lives and we know that we know that we know that you have put your hands upon us and you've used us. And Lord, we pray that you do it again. Lord, that you would do even bigger things in the future than you did in the past. Lord, that the victories that we've seen in the past would embolden our faith to ask for bigger victories in the future. And Lord, I pray that you would do as Ephesians encourages exceedingly more than we could ask or imagine. And Lord, do that in our individual lives and do that in the life of this church. We ask God that right now you'd speak to our hearts for that thing we need to do individually while we wait. May you make it clear. And may we be obedient to do that and act. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.